One of the storylines of the Tokyo Olympics was mental health. So this week's topic, I believe, is very timely as we are going to be talking about failure, one person's inner journey into a very dark place and his renewal after failure. You're going to enjoy listening to Mark Jacobson. He's the author of the book, Eating Glass. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. My conversation with Mark Jacobson is coming up next. Again, my guest is Mark Jacobson, the author of Eating Glass. I wanted to ask him about a quote at the very beginning of the book from Elon Musk. Being an entrepreneur is like eating glass and staring into the abyss of death. Absolutely. It was one of two quotes I used to open my new book, which is titled Eating Glass, The Inner Journey Through Failure and Renewal. Mark, I've read several business books about business failure, but I don't recall reading any books about personal failure. Is that just because I don't read widely enough? There's very little. There's been a movement maybe in the last few years to bring, let's just call it heart and soul into discussions about work in a way that we usually don't do. Jerry Colonna has pioneered a lot of this with his reboot uh, his company and his book. Uh, you'll find guys like Parker Palmer or uh, the poet David White, who speaks to business audiences. But they're speaking more just in general about life. This book is a dive headlong into catastrophic failure, in my case, uh, a startup failure, but not about the business side of it. It's really about what it was like for me going through that and through a a recovery and healing process that that took years. And I wrote it precisely because nobody writes about this. And when I was going through, you know, I was a young, ambitious entrepreneur. I had been steeped in books about failing fast, failing forward, resilience, grit, moonshots. And I had all that energy and all that zeal. And then when the whole thing came apart, I kind of felt like I'd been lied to in a way, not that those things were unimportant, but that nobody had warned me. And once it all fell apart, I had no idea what I was supposed to do or how to process any of what I was going through. And I started writing this really just as a series of very raw journal entries, just processing what I was doing. And over time, I realized that, you know, this is a pretty valuable roadmap that could help other entrepreneurs and and not just entrepreneurs, anybody who has been through a big life failure. And I could write the book that I wish I'd had. And that was a very scary experience, but uh, I did it. And it's been a very rich and rewarding experience as I've connected with others who said, oh my God, your book gave voice to things that no one has ever been able to to speak about. I've never had someone I can share this with, and your book speaks exactly to that experience. And that's what I hoped for. Your book is honest. You are transparent. You make yourself vulnerable. I mean, you, you just open yourself up, which leads to a, a question, who is this for? Because on one hand, it could be a business owner, an entrepreneur. It could be an employee any employee, not just someone in the C-suite. It could be someone in sports uh, who has experienced failure. Uh, Relationships, uh, marriages, 
uh, parents, father, mother with their kids. When you were writing this, did you realize that this could have such a wide audience? I don't think at first. I I very specifically in the beginning wrote it towards entrepreneurs who've just gone through a failure or a shutdown, which I do think is a singular experience that brings a kind of trauma and grief that's uh, its own category and and um, and never talked about. And I hope this book can be kind of a Bible to those people. But as I went, really this, my own journey took me to a lot of bigger themes about uh, my life, about midlife, you know, this coincided between the years I was 35 and 40, kind of taking stock of my accomplishments and, and where I'm headed. Um, bigger questions about, you know, where's my life going? And these are universal human questions. And as I continue to work on the book, I, I brought in examples and references to all the things you talked about. So I, I think this book could speak to anyone. I tried to write kind of a timeless book about the human experience, but really to anyone who has been through a, a soul shattering experience or has just been through a period of feeling like a failure of how do we process that and how do we grow from it and, and come out enriched. Um, and I don't mean that in a trivial sense of, you know, failing your way to success. We have enough of that, but at a much deeper level of, you know, how does this help me live better as a human being and, um, and come out really transformed by this failure experience. There's something virtuous or valiant about your origin story, which by the way, I don't know how many hours in the day there were for you. If you had maybe 48 because you're working on your PhD, uh, you're married. Don't know if you had any children at the time. Oh my gosh. And then there's a startup, but what's special about the startup is the mission And I did not know a lot about this. So we'd have to turn the clock back a few years where there's drone warfare that we're starting to see pop up in the Middle East. And let's just pick up from there. And now you've got this idea that you started writing about and you captured uh, the, the attention of someone in special ops. So why don't you take it from there? and, and kind of share what then led to this failure. Yeah. So I've had an eclectic air force career. I was a C-17 cargo pilot and also a middle East specialist. So I spent two years living in Jordan, learned Arabic. I also had an engineering background and I was in Eastern Turkey doing research on the Syrian civil war when the government in Syria started starving out entire cities as a means of breaking their will And as a mobility pilot who delivers cargo in war zones, people I was meeting were asking me, why doesn't the United States do something? Why can't you airdrop food or medicine? And uh, it's not that easy. We're we're not invincible, even the U.S. Air Force, and we can't fly big cargo planes into a place like Syria or we'll get shot down. See, I didn't realize that. I just thought it'd be easy. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, you can go in with waves and waves of fighters and bombers and fight a big campaign to destroy all the whole air defense system. But we weren't at war with Syria. At that time, we were very diligently staying out of Syria for good reasons. Uh, But I just couldn't let that go. I mean, I was face to face in Turkey with the humanitarian fallout, meeting refugees. And it was, you know, it was it was Syrians asking me. So I started brainstorming. Surely in the 21st century, there must be some way to get aid into these besieged communities. 
And that landed on an idea of using swarms of small drones, building a kind of conveyor belt into these areas because the drones were so small, uh, they could slip right through the defenses. So that was the genesis of the idea. So uh, it was it was this weird paradigm where it was it was sort of a military thing, but I was acting largely on my own trying to invent this concept. So I ended up incorporating as a nonprofit, but we were also dealing with, you know, refugees in the middle of a war zone. This was not a for-profit enterprise. This was trying to prove a capability and then finding some way to bootstrap it and scale it into a, maybe a capability for the United States. So it was a very hard project, as you could imagine, politically, technologically, um, and we had no resources. It was just an idea in my head. But from that, we built a nonprofit. We built drones that could deliver small packages at over 100 kilometers. We actually developed and uh, flew a lot of the technology in the United States and used that to bootstrap support, funding, um, political support, and uh, did as well, I think, as we could in the face of all the obstacles, we were an all volunteer team. And then um, really at the kind of the climax of our success, all the, the difficulties of running a, you know, nonprofit with volunteers using uh, emerging technology caught up with us and, and things uh, started to dis- disintegrate. And, and that led to the, the failure experience. What is your best definition a failure. And that may seem like a trite question. We just look it up in Webster's, but I think from your perspective, you have a different light or can shed a different light on, on that, that concept, that term. What is it? It's actually a hard definition. And I've had some pushback on the book about why I use the word failure because failure is always a chance to learn and grow. But I think it's important to own that word because we feel it in our gut. Um, so a dictionary definition is it's, it's a missed success. You know, we set a goal, we didn't achieve it. We failed. Um, that's true, but I really think it's just the start. And in the book, after wrestling with this question, I defined failure as being taken past the limits of your strength. So we all have experiences where we are so burned out or overcommitted or things are falling apart and we just can't hold it together. Our energy starts to deplete. Uh, that could be a tangible failure like a startup, but could also be someone in a leadership position, just struggling under the burden, someone in a relationship or just something like depression or a midlife season. And you just feel like you've lost your way. And, and maybe the, maybe the best definition for this book is just, feeling like a failure. If you're feeling like a failure, that's really what we're trying to get to in this book is uh, where's that come from? What do you do with that? And how do you grow through it? As I was reading the book, probably about chapter eight, nine, I started asking a question. So we got failure. You just mentioned depression. And then uh, we've been hearing, if we've been watching the Olympics, been hearing the term mental health uh, quite a bit. So those three words, those three terms, failure, mental health, depression, if you drew a Venn diagram, do they all, at some point, is there a connection where where they all three connect or intersect? That's the heart of failure? Or what's the relationship, Mark, between those three? 
Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I hesitate to make a strong claim here because I'm not a mental health professional, but I'll tell you where I've come down. I think you can frame things like depression or anxiety two ways. You can view it as a clinical illness, which is important and very helpful for many people where you know, maybe the solution to that is dealing with okay, with any other illness. Another, another way you can look at it is feelings like depression or anxiety or burnout are a rational response by your body to send you a message in the same way that if you put your hand on a stove, you feel pain. It's alerting you that something is wrong that you have to deal with and uh, it protects you. And I think everybody dealing with mental health challenges has to ask themselves, where is that mix? And, and maybe get some outside perspective. For me, I felt like my experience was more the latter. I, I probably am predisposed to have some ups and downs more than other people, but depression was a pretty rational response to something I'd poured my heart and soul into for two years. Uh, it was a kind of grief, uh, like the loss of a loved one. And I think something similar happens with other kinds of feelings of failure with the midlife passage of, you know, something in our life isn't working for us and it's, it's got us down. It's got us questioning and that can be very difficult, but can also be an opportunity to really explore those feelings and ask, what are they trying to tell us and let that guide us? And that's where the transformation comes. If we, instead of running away from that, we kind of lean into it and really wrestle with it, we can come to maybe some new insights that help us live better. Um, and, you know, not every mental health challenge fits that category, but I do think it's something that we should all take seriously as a possibility. Please push back if I'm way off on this next line of reasoning. As we talk about failure, I started thinking in terms of, okay, what's success? So then I started reasoning with myself, success is really a result of, or it's, it's an outcome based on inputs and outputs, and then you can have success. Well, if that is a true statement, isn't failure also a result or an outcome? And if that's true, here's how I started thinking about your book and I think this is really the way your book is laid out. There's before the failure, there's failure, there's after failure. And I'm just saying that's how this reader started summarizing your book. And it's like, okay, I get it. I see where Mark is going. But am I, am I on the right path about viewing failure? Is really, it's, it's, it's a result. And there were some things that led up to that failure, whether it was in your control or out of your control. Am, am I off base there? Yeah, I think there's always proximate events that lead to these seasons. And that could be an outcome of decisions. It could be bad luck. Um, you know, who knows? One of the, and same with success, right? It could be the result of good decisions. It could be a result of luck. Um and there's many different ways to define success. We all have to answer for ourselves about work and relationships and character and, and whatnot. Um, where I kind of go with failure and success in the book is, yes, it's, a, it's an arc that you ride. It goes through those phases, but it's cyclical. We 
are always riding those waves up and down. Um, in a career, you'll probably have several of those episodes. Uh, in relationships, you'll probably have several. So part of living well is learning how to navigate each of those seasons when it comes and in a healthy way that you grow from. And I kind of end the book almost moving away from the language of failure and success entirely because at some point it's almost not even helpful. It's, uh, you know, in a given day, there's days I'm not sure if I'm failing or succeeding. And I just have to kind of take a deep breath and, and keep my compass um, pointing in the right direction. And, uh, and you learn that's just part of life. And if you're not failing, maybe you're continually facing resistance, as you mentioned, which, by the way, thank you for the reference to Stephen Pressfield. I, I, that's brilliant. In fact, you led me to uh, rereading some of his writing on that in his book. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I love Stephen Pressfield, and his books were very helpful to me, this idea of overcoming resistance. And there is a theme in this book about ambition, and I think that's where you're going is you can play it safe and never take risks and not deal with these, you know, this practical side of failure of, of things not falling apart maybe. But if you are an ambitious person who wants to try and go create new things, lead change, try new things and, and make moonshots, this is part of the journey. And that goes back to the Elon Musk quote at the beginning, uh, Elon's got this like inner darkness that you see in his biographies, this rough childhood. And we see the kind of the manifestations of the way that, you know, he, he acts out sometimes, even as he's one of our most brilliant entrepreneurs of our generation. And uh, I think those things go together that if you're going to, you know, try and save the human race from extinction <laughs> by uh, clean energy and, and, you know, electric cars and going to Mars, uh, that comes at a price and and learning how to navigate failure and and what that does to you as part of the process. You brought up an interesting part of the book. So I did not cheat. I did not skip ahead. I did not look to see what what is Mark going to include. And I'm thinking, I wonder if Mark's ever going to bring up grit. And you did. And I was like, yes. And so I thought that was very, very helpful because Grit isn't necessarily enough. I mean, when when you're in this this depression, just having that that's in fact, you don't even want someone to even say that. Is that correct? It's a great point you bring up, and it's something I wrestled with. I, I read all the books about grit and that motivated me. And it's an important idea, absolutely. What I found is as my nonprofit was failing. We were we literally crashed a drone and burned down three acres of Stanford. The political situation became impossible. Um, I would like to think that my team and I showed remarkable grit. We kept trying and trying and trying and trying, but at some point, it was so damaging that it was no longer the right thing to do. We needed to quit, and that's a theme in the failure section of the book. Is sometimes you do need to quit, and. I felt this shame that by doing that, I was not showing adequate grit. And it led to this kind of existential question. Do I have what it takes to be an entrepreneur? Am I selling out too early? And I think that's the damage of 
or the maybe the risk of talking too much about things like grit, but not acknowledging this kind of dark side of of that, and and the need sometimes to walk away or take a break or take care of yourself. And I don't want to put words into Angela Duckworth's mouth, but I would assume as we were if we were talking about this, she would acknowledge, well, that's just part of grit, right? Like in the moment, I sure didn't feel gritty. I felt like a failure. Looking back five years later, I grew through that experience. I fought many battles. I, you know, came out stronger and I'm kind of moving on to new things. And I was able to tell my story in a way that's helping other people. I think I probably showed grit. I hope so. But in the moment, sometimes that's not what you need. In that one chapter where you introduce grit, you talk about there is a cost to all of us if we go forward and it can be expensive, right? I talk about values because when you're in the hot seat making leadership decisions, maybe people's livelihood relies on you, maybe people's lives rely on you or your employees or uh, you've got a lot of money on the line. You have to make really hard decisions, very imperfect decisions and maybe doubling down and pressing ahead against all odds is the right thing for you, but maybe that will come at a cost. You know, if you invest everything beyond a certain point in a company or a job, maybe it'll cost you your marriage. Maybe it'll cost you your health. Uh, If you focus on your relationships and to sit and say, I'm done, I need to walk away. That might have a price. So how do you make those really hard decisions? And to me, that's the crucible of, of leadership. Uh, how do you decide among all these terrible alternatives? It really is a question of values. No one can decide that for you, but you need to be able to calculate uh, the uh, calculate the cost and the benefit and choose what's the right thing for you. I want to reference four words and in quotes, It's regarding a man named John Rossi, whom I'll have you explain who this person is. It's the wound of not enoughness, the wound of not enoughness. My question, Mark, is failure and perfectionist. Now, no one is is perfect. It's that perfectionistic tendency that it's never good enough. It's never good enough. People have that natural tendency. And by the way, out of transparency, I'm that person. I, I've had to deal with this all of my life, the, this, this perfectionistic uh, tendency. And thankfully, I've had people to say, Mark, just chill out, cool out. Uh, just, you're going to be okay. Sometimes that doesn't always work. But I don't think I'll ever be like John Rossi. What happened to him and why? And, yeah, and, so- and, and finally... Uh, do perfectionists have a harder when it comes to failure? Yeah. So John Rossi is a, an anecdote I use in the book. I had just come across in the news and he was a military general, army leader, being promoted through higher and higher and higher positions who felt that he could no longer live up to the responsibility placed on his shoulders and took very personally soldiers who had died under his command was trying to master all the knowledge in his area of responsibility and couldn't get there and ended up taking his own life. And I could have told other stories as well there, but I think we all have, have known people or seen those kind of stories. And 
Uh, and then I referenced this idea that he had the wound of, of not enoughness. And those words resonated with me. And I think probably most of us in this podcast audience and community are ambitious people and often find our value and our worth in our work or our accomplishments. And I think that's the, maybe the beginning of this. And I think perfectionism just ratchets up the pressure uh, if we're really ambitious and want to go do things and lead things and create things, we want to do it really well. I wrestle with this. Uh, one thread of my story was I was a PhD student while my nonprofit was unfolding and uh, really had some struggles and partly because it was of my perfectionism and it's something I still wrestle with. So yes, I do think perfectionism just pours fuel on the fire. Um, something that goes with that too, that's maybe not as obvious. I came across this idea recently of destiny thinking. I was reading a book about um, hypomania in entrepreneurs. And it's this idea that some people have an almost uh, destiny view of their calling. And this comes out very strong in my book. I felt, you know, I was an air mobility pilot who spoke Arabic and was an engineer. Like I was born for this moment to go do this one thing. And, um, so it's maybe somewhat like perfectionism, but almost has this like spiritual element to it. And when life doesn't live up to that sense of destiny, that can be very disorienting. And I think that tendency is fairly common among entrepreneurs. Um, if you read the work of Dr. Michael Freeman, who's one of the psychologists who studies mental health among entrepreneurs, he's found a very high you know, incidents of, of this kind of thinking. So I think all those things together can, we can put a amount of pressure on ourselves that leads to this kind of catastrophic feelings when it comes apart. I want to read a quote again from the book. When we lose our right to hurt, we are denied the deepest truths to our lives. We become alienated from our own inner journeys. If we cannot hurt, we cannot heal. Again, we, if we cannot hurt, we cannot heal. I love that you and I are two dudes. We're two guys. Um, I think we both are people who appreciate our bold manhood, maybe for uh, women. And I, I have ladies in my family. I think I can get away with saying this. I think they feel more comfortable uh, being more open. I'm not trying to make a blanket statement, but I just think for guys, Again, you and I, I don't know if we can speak for all uh, men across the globe, but I think this is very healthy and appropriate to include that part in the book. Yeah, I think there's a couple threads here. You know, I, I sometimes ask, like, why did this hit me so hard? Because it doesn't hit everybody this way, but it does hit some. And it really got me thinking about this because I, I turned inward afterwards. I spent a lot of time reflecting and thinking about it, whereas some people do just try and move on without dwelling on it. Um, and you're right, men in particular are predisposed this way, but I do think if we run from those demons, they do haunt us in ways that we might not even understand our leadership style, how we perform at work, our family life, and sooner or later, that bill comes due. Uh, I've got a number of friends in this category who went through really hard experiences earlier in life that had to do some real inner work later when that caught up with them. So my encouragement to people who've maybe have gone through something like this is do the work, whatever that means. And that might be uncomfortable. It might be new. Um, 
you know, a book like this, you can kind of pick up and read on your own and quiet and, you know, but it's also something that needs to be done in community uh, with somebody. But yeah, but that's, that's how you grow through these things is by facing them. And that can be a very difficult experience. It's new for a lot of people, but it is so important to, to heal and grow stronger through it. There's a part of me that wishes, Mark, that we had a user manual for dealing with failure. And that user manual would include what you talked about referring to aftershocks, because we're going to get them. And it'd be nice to know that, oh, Mark, or you, Mark, or me, Mark, uh, these six types of things could happen, and you need to be ready for them. But again, your section on aftershocks was, I thought, uh, brilliant. Yeah, thank you. So the idea of aftershocks is that after a failure experience, even when you think you're back to normal, you probably still have some wounds that might get the better of you. And some little thing can come along that sets you off again. For me, with my academic work, it was, you know, if someone published something that might leave me feeling inadequate, why am I not publishing? My work's a mess and I spiral down and that could take me down for two or three days. Um, If someone asked for help with Syria and I had to explain that we dissolved our effort, that could send me to a very dark place for a few days. And yeah, and, and what I realized is just by giving that a name, that has so much power. This is a common experience, but until you name it, you don't really understand what's happening. So what I tried to do is lay out some of these different phenomena, give it a name, say, you know what, this is normal. And that legitimizes people's experience. And now you can start thinking about how you deal with that. Maybe you can't control those emotional thunderstorms when they blow through, but you can recognize, hey, this this happens to me. This is a thing. It's a result of what I went through. And I just need to kind of relax and go spend some time with my kids, let it pass and, and you know, get back to normal in a couple of days. So there are practical ways to help in this aftermath, but you got to understand what you're going through. And that's where, you know, facing yourself and some of these, these challenges can be very helpful. The, the role of key relationships like friends and family are just, they are critical in this healing process, right? Absolutely. And I'm very fortunate to have very good relationships with my family. That was foundational for me. I know not everyone is that privileged, but uh, everyone has someone in their life that they can lean on. And, but those relationships also take investment. And one of the things I write about is that when you're going through a failure, it often does strain your relationships because if you're in a high stakes role, it's probably draining you. It's creating stress and your friends and family might feel that. So uh, on the one hand, you've got to lean on your family for strength or your loved ones or your friends. On the other hand, you also need to be very careful to invest in those relationships. And that there may be some strain there and you've got to spend some real time uh, repairing or restoring or growing those relationships as well um, to, to grow through this. I want to read another quote. The aftermath of failure gives you space to become who you really are. Old script versus new script. What does that mean? This idea comes really out of a lot of the literature on midlife and also a lot from Jungian psychology. And it's this idea that when we're young, we are raised up in someone else's life. We're raised up in who our parents want us to be, the norms and culture we're raised in. And even as we're 
becoming independent and starting to have our own dreams, our own ambitions, we think we know what we want to go do in the world. We set out and go do those things and maybe our 20s and 30s. And somewhere along the way, some of those things work out great and other things aren't what we hoped. Maybe they don't satisfy us the way we thought they would. Maybe some of our dreams don't end the way we hoped. Uh, maybe some of our beliefs change or we recognize that um, the way we were raised is different from who we actually feel we want to be. And part of growing up is facing that and learning to live a new script, one that really works for us. And this is where you know, there's richness in this failure experience because it kind of cracks you open. It forces you to face all this. Uh, a lot of who you were is maybe left in ruins and you've got this opportunity to reflect and become somebody new. And that's where, despite being a book about failure, this is a hopeful book about transformation. And I thought long and hard about the words I used and I, I subtitled it, The Inner Journey Through Failure and Renewal. It's not just healing, it's actually becoming someone new and, and a better human. I want to circle back to the very beginning. We talked about who this book is for. You know, it could be a business setting. It could be in sports. It could be in the family. But we didn't really address age group. So this past week, and we're doing this interview during uh, this is the day after the, the final day of the Olympics. We heard Michael Phelps say it's okay not to be okay. Now, I'm sure you and I would love to, let's let's unpack that a little bit because the, the, your message, is, I'm sure you're, what you would say to him is, Michael, I think you need to add a little bit more to this. But let's say you're talking to a large group of high school kids. Maybe it's a TED Talk. Uh, these are people in high school. I'm I'm having this opinion after reading your book, Mark, that this is not just for young adults, people middle age or older. This should probably be starting to be talked about at the high school level. First of all, you can agree or disagree, but what would be your talk to a large group of teenagers on this topic? One strong element especially in American society, is this just constant projection of success. And we feel this most acutely on social media of always projecting optimism and accomplishment and um, putting a smile on everything. And, and there's a place for that. You know, imagine like a, a high school commencement address. You want to celebrate that day for sure um, and, and give people ambitions and, and dreams. But I think the corrective that could be added to a hopeful message forward looking about ambition and, and dreams is would be something like this. It would be, you're going to go out and have opportunities to do great things, achieve things, pursue your dreams. But what people often don't tell you is it's not always going to be that way. You will have dreams that don't work out. You will have times when you feel lost times when you're struggling and that's part of life. It's both of these things. And your goal is to go grow as a person, to become wise, to have good character. Uh, there's this Greek idea of eudaimonia, of flourishing in all your capacities, which I love. It's the heart of my worldview. Part of flourishing into a healthy human being is being able to express all sides of this, this journey. 
And when those times come, your challenge that life asks of you is to learn from those experiences, to be stretched. Those are the times that will enrich you perhaps the most. So even if you don't feel that right now, know those seasons are coming, tuck it away. And when it does come, just remember this, that this is normal as part of life. And this is your chance to grow in a richer and deeper way. We ask every person on the show about their favorite books. And as I read your book, don't ask me how I knew this, but within, after the forward, I was like, this guy, I know he reads a lot. He reads widely. I also have a feeling, Mark, that when you read a book, it's not just the depth, but there's the width. So (laughs) I just, I, you just tell it. And then when I got to the end, it's like, okay, I can't wait to hear what some of his favorite books are. I think I have an idea, but what, what are some of the books that have stood out for you? Yeah, that's such a hard question. Cause like most book lovers, there's so many, I'll give you kind of a sampling of some different ones. Uh, my favorite novel is the, is East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Uh, it's just such a rich, beautifully written book about human nature and about life. And it's just a pleasure to read. Um, I love that book. Um, to give you a recent favorite, like in the last year, when I discovered David White, he just spoke to me more than almost anybody I'd read. He's a, he's a, was in business for a number of years. His heart was always in poetry and he managed to make a career for himself, bringing poetry into discussions at work about this kind of inner issue. So he writes in a very similar style to me and his writing really spoke to me as I was kind of growing through this. He's got a book called Crossing the Unknown Sea that's very resonant with the themes in my book. Um, and then to give you a very different book from what we've been talking about, you know, I've got a whole academic side. I'm a professor and I do innovation and military strategy. Um, Eric Beinhocker's book, The Origin of Wealth. The title's a little bit deceiving, but it's probably the best single volume about complexity theory. Uh, and that book has probably shaped my thinking on so many dimensions of life more than any other book. It really takes complexity theory and applies it to economics, but there's a lot in there kind of linking science to just how human beings live and form societies that's uh, been very helpful to me. Your website is Mark D as in dog, Jacobson, and the Jacobson ends with S-E-N, not O-N, S-E-N.com, Mark D. Jacobson. Uh, What are you working on uh, these days? I see... Now in the book, I I wasn't for sure if you'd got the uh, your PhD, but and maybe if you said that I missed it, I apologize. But then I went to the websites like you did complete it, so that, that's that had to be hard work because I know you're struggling there for a while for your your research paper, right? Uh, is it called the dissertation? So um, I know there's yep. that, that that was tricky there for a while, but so that that's completed so what what's what's going on right now these days so i'm still in the air force i'm a professor of strategy and innovation at an air force school called the school of advanced air and space studies my academic work i'm i'm working a lot on um applying complexity theory to military strategy in my writing life um i've been trying to grow what i started with this book into more of a platform to help talk about these kind of heart and soul issues of people out in the world and really just equip people to be more wholehearted leaders. I've got a special passion for 
people who are trying to create change inside large organizations or social systems because it's so hard. It's, it's a very different world than entrepreneurship of starting something new. So uh, I've, I've been doing a little bit of blogging. I've been kind of intermittent with how I do that, but very similar themes. And I'm, I'm working on a book now exploring our desire to escape from the world and the tension with our need to engage in the world. So you look at all of the hard things going on in our world right now, the, the political controversy, the polarization, COVID, global warming. There's this impulse just to get away. You look at people leaving the cities, buying their sprinter vans and heading out into the woods. And I feel that pull. I love the outdoors. I want to just escape from it. But there's never been a time where we need more people building and committing and planting roots in communities. So I'm kind of exploring... And what does it mean to, to be a leader in that environment? How do we satisfy that longing in our soul to have rest and retreat, but, but be engaged and lead in a world that needs it? So that's where my writing is hopefully going to go next. The book is Eating Glass. Love the book. Five stars easily. And Mark, it's been an honor. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Mark Jacobson, thank you very much. Eating Glass, the inner journey through failure and renewal. Highly recommend the book. Next week, I'm excited to have on Gary Harps. I've known Gary for about five, six years. Gary is one of the co-founders of Solomon Software. And if you're not old like me, if you don't remember that title, Great Plains went on to buy Solomon Software. And of course, Microsoft then bought Great Plains. After Solomon Software, Gary's written a couple of books. One of them is Six Disciplines for Excellence, Six Disciplines Execution Revolution. That's the second book. He's also has created a software and a professional services firm called Six Disciplines. And we'll talk about that business, the work and strategy and execution in his two books next week. Cannot wait. Uh, he, he knocked it out of the ballpark uh, with some of the stories that he shared. That's next week on CFO Bookshelf. I'm Mark Gandy. Keep learning. Keep growing. <laughs>